0: Take a look up at Scott. Oh, come here. Come here. Give it back. It's a camera. One picture's worth a thousand words, or a thousand bucks. Tell her that. Tell her. Why not? We're on the payroll. Double your money. I want something on Delgado's dealings with the Chinese. Something in writing, Harry. No more bullshit. Louisa no would never betray Delgado. She worships the man. Does she know where you're at? Not in an inkling. Never tell her about your prison days? Not as such. Call her in, Harry. Or I might have to bring her up to speed on Harry Pendle, the criminal. You stay away from her.
1: française qu'il faut que je lis tous les paroles parce que elle vient de la fille il ya trois jours elle a seulement trois jours et, et c'est pour ça que j'ai les parents ici mais je vous promets que depuis aujourd'hui il va être très populaire en france vous voyez je pense
0: la mer, qu'on voit danser
2: Hello and welcome to the third episode of Tinker Taylor Podcast Spy, the podcast inspired by the works of John Le Corre. We are going to be talking today about the first 11 chapters, uh, chapters 1 to 11 inclusive of The Tailor of Panama, uh, which was a book uh, that John wrote in 1996, partially as an answer we think to Graham Greene's Our Man in Havana, which was written in 1958 and uh, we're going to get into it Uh, one note before we start is that you can safely listen to this if you want to pick up the book and start reading now we will not be discussing any spoilers for the future parts of the book we'll just be discussing what happens in chapters 1 to 11 so no worries about ruining the book if you listen to this first half and then we will have a second part where we finish uh, chapter 12 through the end of the book so emma has the lead today but before we let her take over I guess I'll just introduce everyone this is Tyler speaking hello we've got Max hello and then Emma hello so with that I think Emma why don't you kick us off and get us started
1: Sure. So, the Tailor of Panama, as we said, is John Le Carre's answer to Armin and Havana. Uh, they're both satires that have the premise of an Englishman in a foreign country deciding to pass on fake information to British intelligence and ending up completely over their heads. And they're both very funny satires. And uh, so, Tailor of Panama is basically a riff on Armin and Havana. So, let's dig in. Yeah.
3: Um, I mean, I I think. I think the first takeaway from this book is that John Le Carre's two running obsessions through his books are tailors and Jewish people. Um, Yeah, they they, for someone who's neither a tailor or Jewish, they (laughs) pop up with alarm. Well, not alarming, but (laughs) high frequency. (laughs)
2: Yeah, like 'cause it's it's certainly like in the spy who came in from the cold, you know, obviously it'd be very strange to write a book in that era and not have like any Jewish representation or Jewish characters. Uh in this book specifically it's a bit weirder, but uh I guess it still works. I guess we'll find out. I mean, I think part of I mean, a big part of it
3: is just that the in England and I mean and he mentions it was kind of dying by this point, but the tailors were kind of a historically Jewish uh, right. Profession uh, right. in England, and I mean in New York too. Um, and I, I it, it kind of fits, and I, I think it kind of fits the the whole. I one of my I guess kind of a pet theory is that he he has these Jewish characters who are it's like spies. They're trying to fit into the to society. Um, yeah, you know, Pendle's That's- trying to pretend he's being upper class. You know, Liz is is trying to find her place in society. Um and uh you know if we're going back to Liz and um uh God, why am I blanking? Um Lamas? No, not Lamas, uh uh who was executed. Um Carl. Car no, not Carl. Uh was- <laughs>
1: Fiedler. Fiedler.
3: <laughs> Fiedler. yes. Fiedler. Thank you. Yeah, of <laughs> course. Yeah. Um The other you know. Jewish person, yeah. So yeah
2: that's interesting theory i could see that but he's like so he he's he's definitely not jewish right <laughs> like we we don't there's no secret uh no no i don't think so is
0: there? i
1: i think like always been interested in how um the way exploring people who live in the sort of like edge of identity in these sort of like yeah. liminal spaces um and how they uh sort of uh basically fit into uh The norms of society so he's got um these uh running characters who are you know they're they're jewish and they're dealing with a deeply anti-semitic society or they're um Mm -hmm. he's got a lot of gay characters um Mm -hmm. he has a lot of characters who struggle with infidelity issues like it's all things where like people are at the sort of edge of uh whether, whether it's, you know, what's acceptable in society, whether that's, you know, an actual norm that should be sure. upheld or not. Um, not comparing being Jewish to being unfaithful to no, no, no.
3: I totally um, get it. Emma, once again, putting it much more eloquently than I can. But
1: I think he's just always been, he, he was always very interested in that idea of um, people who have to fit into a certain box and sure. how they do that and how you can relate that to the issues of espionage.
3: Um, but yeah, so, I mean, I guess if how this book kicks off, I, it, you know, it is immediately I, it's probably at least of the books I've read his funniest book. It is just,
2: it is incredibly funny. Yeah. And it, even from like the, the start, um, yeah. And it has a style, uh, he, he's always been so good at, uh, at describing kind of the way people speak and every character has a very unique speech pattern, which I think is a really hard thing to do as an author to to just by using um, words, make the way someone speaks very mm-hmm. uh, unique and interesting. And he's really good at doing that across all his characters from different backgrounds. And I think that's one of the things that really separates him. And in this book, he uses it in a very comedic way. I think all the characters are very funny in just the way they, um, in their mannerisms and the way they talk, even outside of just what they're saying.
1: Yeah, the opening paragraph is just perfect because uh, the entire book is written in this sort of very breezy tone and it matches the character perfectly because it's written in essentially this sort of salesman's pattern where it's someone desperately trying to keep you on the line and just, you know, talking and talking and talking at you. And so I'll just read the first paragraph so people can get a sense. Mm -hmm. The book starts off very differently from the spy who came in from the cold, which I think we would describe (laughs) as having, you know, very measured and I always describe John Carré's prose as brittle. Instead, it's, it was a perfectly ordinary Friday afternoon in tropical Panama until Andrew Osnard barged into Harry Pendle's shop asking to be measured for a suit. When he barged in, Pendle was one person. By the time he barged out again, Pendle was another. Total time elapsed, 77 minutes, according to the Mahogany Cased Clock by Samuel Collier of Eccles, one of the many historic features of the House of Pendle and Braithwaite Limitata tailors to royalty, formerly of Seville, Ro- London, and presently of the Via España, Panama City, or just off it, as near to the Espana has made no difference, and PNB for short.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's great.
1: So we meet our, our character right away in the in the morning where he um, he wakes up to the noise of traffic, and uh, it's, I wasn't there. It was two other blokes. She hit me first, and it was with her consent, Your Honor, he informed the morning because he had a sense of impending punishment but couldn't place it. Then he remembered his 8.30 appointment with his bank manager and sprang out of bed.
2: (laughs) The whole scene of him kind of getting ready, getting the kids ready. Getting out the door, dropping them off. It's very movie. Like, it's very early 2000s, late 90s. Yeah, it's
1: early movie montage. Yeah,
2: you can see it in your head, like, the quick cuts and the, like, as they're, like, doing all the different uh, parts of his morning routine. Yeah, getting
1: breakfast for the kids, doing the chores. So our character is Harry Pendle. He's a Jewish-British man. He lives with his American wife, Louisa, and his two kids, Hannah and Mark. I think they're eight and nine. One so who goes a, to
3: a Catholic school and one who goes to the Jewish school.
0: Oh yeah, <laughs>
3: which oh, is a very funny uh, little little pull. And I think maybe just a tiny uh, callback to uh, our man in Havana, where the, the daughter and my our man yeah Havana the is a very yeah Catholic and religious. So
1: his his wife is a Protestant who works for in a. Uh, an advisor to the Panamanian government, uh, Ernesto Delgado, and he's known for being very incorruptible. And she's, you know, a very strict woman, is like a- immediately grousing at him for making fun of her boss. But the scene where he's going through traffic and <laughs> just trying to navigate this sort of chaotic Panama City is just so funny. And there's all these continued shifts to present tense that really keeps the pace flowing, which is a really cool trick that I don't think I've seen in many of his other books that I've read and um, there's all these great lines that are like today if anybody pulled a gun in a traffic jam he would be met with a fusillade from every car but pendles <laughs> it
2: just, yeah. it's, very it's pretty underrated like, how like you know you you would not think of, of Le Corre as being a funny person because most of the stuff he writes is so serious yeah. so thought out so introspective but um, he's got so many great—not only just like little kind of jokes like that that are perfect. Like, and they're a great mm. mixture of kind of dad joke, um, but also just legitimately funny. Uh, but also just the way everyone talks in this book—it's like he—I feel like he could have just been a comedic writer or written like comedic screenplays. Like he—he, yeah,
1: the pacing and like his sense of yes. comedic timing are really good. Yeah. So I mean, you get all these great lines, like um, when he goes to meet his bank manager. So. <laughs> You know, here's the major thrust of the book: is Pendle is enormously in debt over this unsuccessful rice farm that he bought with uh, his wife's inheritance from, I believe, uh, grandfather. And so it's Ramon Rudd owned, owed Pendle ten thousand dollars for five suits. Pendle owed Rudd a hundred and fifty thousand dollars. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, there's just this great scene. You know, I know there's already a movie of this that was made in two thousand one and has. Jeffrey Geoff, Rush or is it Jeffrey Jeffrey Rush? Yeah, yeah. And uh, Pierce Brosnan, but yeah. I would love to see like the Coen Brothers tackle this.
2: Yeah, it would honestly be a great yeah. like. It, it feels perfectly suited to their style. Um, and just a note on that too, Jeffrey Rush. I've seen the movie. I saw it quite a while ago. I don't remember it all that well, but I I love Jeffrey Rush as an actor, and he's got such a distinctive voice. And one of the joys of reading this for me was every. Every sentence I read that Pendle was speaking, which is Jeffrey Rush plays Pendle in the movie, I heard in Jeffrey Rush's voice. And I <laughs> highly recommend even just watching the trailer, or or watch Pirates of the Caribbean if you want. That that that'll also <laughs> work. And get his voice in your head, and it really makes the material that much better.
3: Yeah, I mean, I could also see this would make an incredible like Ianucci
2: film. Like if you yeah. got like the yeah. death of Stalin, just Stalin treatment, has just
1: that sense of timing, really.
2: Yeah. It's Damn, all the little I, character beats. Do a John Le Carre movie. How has that not happened yet? We I, make yeah, it happen. may be perfect. We should
3: pitch him. Is someone yeah, like let's do, pitch him. we need to pitch him? I'm sure he'll listen. Script. Yeah. Um I mean going just through the chapter as the designated stereotypical New York Jew of the podcast, the, the <laughs> point where the daughter is having a bagel and cream cheese that has bought in panama just i i think it made me gag when i read it just <laughs> imagining how bad that bagel must be i i can't imagine i mean maybe i'm wrong maybe panama has the best panama city has the best bagels in the in the world but i i doubt it
1: what's it you're always talking about the lie. the yeah, light you
3: have to you have to yeah. boil them in lie. that's that's how you get a good bagel um,
1: do you think they do that in panama
3: I'm guessing it's probably a lender's bagel, like those. Should, we, should we add
1: this to the to the bad food of John LeCary cookbook?
3: Yes, exactly <laughs> the, the the Panamanian bagels and uh, a breast of chicken and calf's foot jelly.
2: <laughs> mm, a buffet. I think, for- I, wait,
3: I think he's just like making fun of Jewish food. It seems like.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe he maybe. is. <laughs>
3: Maybe the There's uh maybe that it. maybe that critic was right, Emma.
2: Yeah.
1: Oh about yeah, I think <laughs> we can get to that later. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um well, so in chapter 1 they they do bring up that um Pendle was raised by his uh deceased uncle Benny and um something I really like about this book is that they just kind of very slowly unfold major character beats. Yeah. And so um, you're just kind of gradually learning things that radically shape your knowledge of the characters, and then in hindsight, make things both much funnier and much more shocking. Yeah. Um, so his deceased uncle Benny was a huge influence in his life. Um, he taught him how to how to basically talk at people and how to charm people, and he calls it fluence, which I've never heard before. I've yeah, it might just be yeah. John LeCarre's idiosyncratic slang. I think. Term. Uncle- Uncle Benny was probably modeled on John LeCarrie's father, who is a con man. I Um, didn't know that. I think LeCarrie's always had, you know, despite uh, his troubled childhood and, like, his relationship with his father, there's definitely a fondness there for tricksters of all types. Yeah, so uh, Pendle shows up to his uh, shop. Yeah. Okay. So Pendle shows up to his shop. Uh, we meet Marta, his uh, receptionist, and the first thing that's noted about her is that she has like really severe facial scarring, and there's not yet explanation for that. Right. Um,
2: and and what, did, what did you guys think of that? What did you guys think of the way that was handled? I mean, um, I think. Yeah. He's he's
3: John Le Carre does this. Uh, he does it really well in the book of kind of. Dropping in, you know, it's going. It's is very breezy and funny, and then he drops in these hints of, uh you know, the kind of like pain and horror that's going on in the yeah, background. Yeah. um
1: Yeah, it's these these swift little like notes that something yes. terrible is going it, on or something horrible it, has happened. And the so stru-
3: the structure and the way he does this actually, it's it reminds me a lot of Catch Twenty Two in the way that. You know there's the flashbacks and you know there's it's kind of right ride, riotously funny and then all of a sudden you get dropped into like some of the most horrific events that you know after he's been literally making dick jokes in in, <laughs> in the in the in chapter um one of the chapters when he's measuring andy and then you kind of yeah. get uh just like full-throated horror of what what is behind kind of this, the spy operation.
2: Yeah. And I think a lesser author would have, the, the Marta stuff I think could have felt very kind of gross and offensive. Yes. I think he threads the needle where you get the impact of it, but it doesn't feel like um, it's being utilized in a way that is like Marta is a very fleshed out and interesting character. I think a lesser author probably just uses the physical, um, features of Marta and kind of leaves the the character stuff behind and it maybe is a bit offensive but I think he handled it pretty well in my opinion
1: yeah um, I also want to note that um, once he's introduced and he's he's you know he's cutting his, his first suit uh, he draws an explicit uh, line between being a tailor and being a a sort of con man or impersonator. So your ideal cutter, he liked to maintain with acknowledgments to his late partner, Braithwaite is your born impersonator. His job is to place himself in the clothes of whomever he is cutting for and become that person until the rightful owner claims them, which I think really speaks to Max's point about how, uh, is just really fascinated with tailors, but also just how they fit into the, um, the spy, uh, sort of, Analogy, and then mm. also when I was reading reviews of this, pretty much everyone pointed out that John LeCarre is very accurate about clothing and tailoring.
0: Mm. So that's
1: a point yeah. in his favor here. Um, I have no idea if he, if he, I would have no clue if he made it all up. Um.
2: <laughs> no, it's definitely accurate. Yeah, he did a good job
3: with it. He did a good job, and also, I mean, I have no idea if he's accurate about Panama, but it seems yeah. like he, <laughs> he has, he has done his research and i i mean there's he's done his research but it's also a big part of it isn't necessarily at least i when i'm reading things like this if i'm watching is not necessarily like exact accuracy but he does he uses the uh surroundings and environments to evoke uh you know emotion and feeling very well um and like placing these characters in kind of an environ that works for the the kind of story and point he's trying to get across
2: yeah i i think like panama is an interesting place because i i think you could have probably said it in a lot of um a lot of places and it wouldn't feel quite the same because i think panama is interesting because obviously the canal which is kind of the backdrop of the entire Mm -hmm. history modern history of panama right is the building of the canal, the ownership of the canal, which this book really is about in a lot of ways on kind of a metal level. And um, and it's also a- as important of a thing as the Panama Canal is. It's seemingly a very small world, at least on the kind of upper mm-hmm. echelon of Panamanian society. Um, so that is like really ripe for this type of book where it's all about like who you know, but then there's this huge important World asset in the background to kind of heighten the suspense because if you just had it in, like, I don't know, Colombia or whatever, um, the yeah. huge amounts of international interest on what's going with the Panama Canal is what really makes the kind of espionage stuff pop. So it's a really great setting, I think,
1: yeah, because it's at a moment of transition because the ownership of the canal was returned to Panama and. Um, what was Thank it? You, December 3rd 1999, yeah. which they spell out in the book. And, you know, the book was written in 1996. I'm not sure exactly what year it's set in, but mm-hmm. um, they make it very clear that, you know, this is imminent. And so there's kind of a battle for sort of control of this nexus of mm-hmm. trade. Um, so uh, Marta tells Pendle that uh, a British guy is called, which surprises Pendle because he doesn't talk to a ton of Englishmen. And, um, so he gets on the phone with him and, uh, he's very clearly this very posh and well-mannered guy. And, uh, they almost immediately notes the, um, class differences in the call where we learn that Pendle grew up in the East end of London and that, um, to, to an Osnard Pendle's origins were as unmistakable as his aspirations to escape them, which was a line that I really liked, um, so, I think, like, this sort of immediate class difference comes to play where they're both, you know, talking in this sort of jocular, like, higher register of speech, but there's a very clear uh, sort of knowledge that Pendle takes in the conversation where he's trying to impress this posh guy with his expertise and his knowledge.
3: Yeah, and I, th- I think they're kind of both putting on airs and kind of taking on or trying to take on each other's class, whereas... Pendle's trying to yeah. affect this upper-class uh, mannerisms and, you know, posh suits and, you know, carefree life, outdoorsmen, and, you know, with a sportsman corner and things like that. <laughs> uh, and whereas Oznar on the other end, you know, who's supposed to Etonian rich uh, and is, you know, just cursing up a storm and very vulgar and, ill-fitting suits and things like that um they're kind of each trying to be each other in a way or or wanting to be each other it seems
1: yeah so we have this really great conversation between them where they make an appointment and he's talking about how much it'll all run and it's all in this very you know jovial um posh guys talking conversation that (laughs) it's very fun it's fun where pendle is bragging about yeah it's very funny um and Pendle is just going on and on about uh, Braithwaite, the, um, the dear departed um, partner in the suit, I mean, in the tailoring firm who uh, left the shop to him and trained him and taught him everything he knows. And so, you know, he just waxes eloquently about him and about uh, Panama trying to impress Mr. Osnard.
3: And you see, I mean, you get the sense as you read, you can tell, and John LeCarrie does this, very well that like Osnar just kind of needling him, trying to push him to yeah. see how far he yeah. will you know take the lie, keep his story going how how well he can you know come up on the fly and I guess util- utilize his fluence basically to yeah to keep yeah. the story going
1: yeah, he's very much just sort of amping him up and you know drawing him out, seeing how much he can keep going on this sort of salesman's uh, pattern well,
2: and at, at this point, the reader doesn't know. Yeah. That yeah. Because coming. first we have to meet
1: all his, um, his regular customers. Yeah. And so it switches back to present tense and we get another great sort of montage scene where, <laughs> um, you know, we get Rafi Domingo, who's, uh, Panama's leading playboy. Um, and, uh. So he says, Senor Domingo, sir," opening his arms. Superb to see you and looking shamefully youthful with it, if I may say so. A quick lowering of the voice. And may I remind you, Raffi, that the late Mr. Braithwaite's definition of our perfect gentleman, deferentially pinching at a lower sleeve of Raffy's blazer, is a thumb knuckles width of shirt cuff. Nevermore. And so, you know, he's just kind of flitting around and um, serving these people who range from uh, Raffi to... Uh, this guy named Ricky who works in the ministry of public works, um, Teddy alias, the bear Panama's most hated newspaper columnist and undoubtedly it's ugliest. And, um, then a guy named Philip who worked for, uh, the dictator Noriega. Um, and then finally we get to Osnard. And so, um, we're on chapter three now. And, um, So this this young guy who's uh, um, so Osnard shows up. He's a young guy. Um, He uh, Pendle notes that he speaks Spanish, although he's only just arrived. Um, He uh, announces to Marta that Osnard is young and he's pretty excited about this customer who's very eager to spend money because, again, Pendle is one hundred fifty thousand dollars in debt. And we've got all these hints that. Despite him being a popular guy, maybe people aren't spending as uh, as much as he as he quite needs.
2: Yeah, I think an um, important part to note is that like one of the one of the reasons this whole thing is happening is because Pendle's kind of the only uh, high end tailor presumably in Panama, yep. and because he has the uh, background quote unquote of being from Savile Row. Uh, he's kind of got the pedigree and, you know, it's kind of, you know, like in a lot of South American countries, you know, elites in those countries are still kind of holdovers from colonial times where they're usually a more white, um, more European background. And so I think a lot of times the upper classes in those countries have kind of a a hankering and a love for things that are European as kind of a designation of quality or, um, success, things like that. So he kind of fills that role in the community of like the hangout, like all the rich people get suits there. Anyone who's anyone is getting suits there. Not only are they getting suits there, but they're all meeting there. They're talking about their lives, political intrigue, etc. So he becomes kind of like the quasi, you know, therapist, bartender, all mixed together. Uh, so he ends up having this um, great wealth of knowledge about Panama, the Panamanian high class society.
1: I also like the line, um, just looking now, where um, it, it, there's a brief interlude about Marta and um, how she makes sandwiches and stuff for the customers, and he is she's currently enrolled in, in university, and it says, he had wanted her to do law, but she had refused point blank on the grounds that lawyers were liars. It is not appropriate, she would say in her carefully honed ironic Spanish, that the daughter of a black carpenter should debase herself for money.
3: <laughs> I agree with this one. I would I wholeheartedly <laughs> agree with this point.
1: <laughs> um, so we finally get to meet Osnard and um so he shows up and he's he kind of stuns Pindle by being this very young confident guy. And then Osnard immediately mentions that he's met uh, Braithwaite, yeah, which who the man who uh, as we said, allegedly taught Pendle everything he knows about tailoring and left the shop to him. And um,
2: who is dead, importantly, yeah. Yeah,
1: and who is dead. And uh, so this this stuns Pendle for a moment um, when Osmond <laughs> explains, "Oh, yeah, he used to dress my father." Um, yeah. They end up swapping <laughs> anecdotes about Mister Braithwaite. And, and,
2: and um, it, there's this great thing that Lakari is doing, where he's he's kind of he's kind of showing that um, Pendle is kind of freaking out. And he's having like a panic attack about this, but he's holding it together and, and, you know, using his fluence to get through it. And the reader, it's still, at this point, it's still very confusing on first read because you don't understand like why he's so freaked out at this point. But it's, there's just all these references to him, like, on his inner monologue being like oh my god keep it together keep it together and you're like what i don't get it it's great
1: yeah like he sees the portrait of braithwaite or you know allegedly braithwaite and he's like wow i wouldn't have recognized him what did the g stand for <laughs> george said Pindle, wondering why osnard thought he should have recognized him in the first place but not going so far as to inquire <laughs>
2: <laughs> i think this is ultimately um so my theory is that um John LeCray had this scene in his head, this specific scene, and wrote the book like around this because this this chapter in the scene is, I think, like the best part of the book. I think. It's yeah. so it's such a great see twist, that. and the tension yeah. is so good. And he it's yeah. such a good like kind of trick on the reader. I love it.
1: No, it's just such a perfect set piece where it's you know, two people are talking about a man who we later find
0: out <laughs> yeah. um
1: is not <laughs>
0: real. Yeah.
1: But I love the way they, um, so they, you know, they're talking about Braithwaite, they're treating um, anecdotes, you know, Pendle is disgusted by the use of alpaca, um, you know, uh, as as linings, and um, Osnard says, old Braithwaite would have boiled over, and um, Pendle (laughs) has this great line that I highlighted where he's like, "Um, he did, sir, and I'm not ashamed to quote him. Harry, he said to me, it took him nine years to call me Harry. Harry, what they're doing to the alpaca, I wouldn't do to a dog. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: it's so so then Osmar,
1: yeah. he keeps he keeps needling uh, pendle during this very lengthy conversation where they're doing the fitting. And um and so he alludes to Pendle tailoring for for Noriega, uh, which provokes him. Um he points out that, you know, he was like, you know, what else, what other choice did I have I had to tailor to? make money and then he also tries to sort of shore up his his uh democratic credentials by saying you know well you know if there was strike activity well we weren't we were supportive of that and um and then osnard actually one of my favorite parts in here is osnard explicitly um notes that, well, Pindle meets a lot of, you know, really famous and important people who t- spend a lot of sort of intimate time with him chatting. And so he, he says quite an intelligence service you run then. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> so that's when the reader is like, Oh yeah, this isn't just a fun book about a Taylor.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're,
1: we're reading a John le Carre. We've got yeah. some spy shit coming someone's up. A spy here. Yeah. Someone's a spy. And so, um, there's just this sort of, just this the whole chapter is just this sort of breezy fitting where they're, um Pendle's getting increasingly nervous and, like, he's starting to raise his voice. Osnard is starting to provoke him and needle him more and sort of ask questions about Braithwaite. And he starts to correct him on facts about Braithwaite. And so Pendle is starting to get really flustered and be like, well, I knew him. and uh and then it's it's mentioned several times that Marta takes an immediate dislike to Osnar and like she thinks he's a fake and a phony. Um, we get this line Marta scowling partly because of Osnard and partly because that was the way her face had set after the doctor had done his terrified best, which is again one of those just sort of casual illusions that you yeah, know something yeah. terrible has happened to this poor woman. and so finally he's um he's finishing the fitting. And uh, Osnard's uh, asking, you know, um, about his early days (laughs) uh, being the apprentice for Old Braithwaite. And so he's, you know, sort of making up all of these sort of imaginings of how it happened. And it's starting to knock Pendle off his game. Uh, because he's really good at this fluence and this patter, but Osnard is really starting to needle him. And so we get these lines like, Pendle replied uncertainly as he tried to shake off the experience of having his own anecdote retold to him. (laughs) (laughs) Eventually, uh, he says he was feeling the artistry coming back to him, what Uncle Benny called his fluence, and he just starts rhapsodizing about Braithwaite but then Osnar corrects him and is like you've forgotten he had a huge mustache and Pendle gets defensive and is like no he didn't have a
0: mustache
1: (laughs) kind of go on and you get this increasing sense of stress and strain that ends up with um, his throat was sore his eyes hurt and there was a singing in his ears but somewhere in him there was also a sense of accomplishment I did it my leg was broken I had a temperature of 105 but the show went on fabulous osnard breathed thank you sir most beautiful bullshit i've ever listened to in my life and <laughs> me like a hero and here's where it drops <laughs> for the reader um osnard yeah. is like you are completely full of shit
2: Nick.
0: yeah
1: and so I, pendle is just shook he's whispering to him like what no i'm not and he said he reveals pendle is a convict he's an ex-juvenile delinquent He served two and a half years for arson of a six-year sentence. Uh, He learned how to tailor while he was in jail in the UK. And he moved to Panama three days after he was released um, because Uncle Benny got him out of jail. And so he married Louisa, uh, and he has the two kids, and he's insolvent courtesy of the rice farm. Pendle and Braithwaite, a load of bullocks. No such firm existed in Savile Road. There was never a liquidation because there's nothing to liquidate. Arthur Braithwaite, one of the greatest characters of fiction. Khan what life's about. Don't give me that swivel-eyed look. I'm bonus. Answer to your prayers. You hearing me? <laughs> and Pendle is just as a master bullshitter. He's just losing his mind.
0: Yeah.
1: Um. Because he also... Uh, Osnard is like, well, who knows? And Pendle is still freaking out. And um, Osnard's like, So your family knows, right? (laughs) (laughs) No. And we find out his family has no idea of any of this. Um, He's not only been maintaining this lie about his firm for decades. um, He is and built this whole life in Panama, uh, but his family and his wife have no idea that he is, you know, an ex-con from the East end of London who learned how to tailor in jail instead of, you know, in this sort of posh apprenticeship.
2: (laughs) Yeah, that's that's the best part. I mean, yeah it's, it's just, it the, the penny dropping there is really great. And even, it's, um, it's
1: so great. Like we're just 50 pages in and you're just, the, the rug is completely yanked from under yep. the reader.
2: Now I will say my, uh, my criticism of the book, which, you know, I guess it depends on how you view the book. If you want to view it as more of kind of just a, um, extended comedy of manners, which ultimately it kind of is in a weird way. um, there's a lot of great material here. My my one criticism is, I don't know if um, later chapters after this ever kind of capture the extremely fast flow and dynamism of this chapter. And there's a lot of chapters we were talking before we started recording that you could easily cut out and the book would still function properly. The story would still work. Now, you would lose a lot of great bits in there. So that's why I'm saying, like, depending on how you view the book, if you view it more as like, just a great funny novel versus like a taut spy thriller um it works both but in my opinion there's definitely a, a, a lot of slack in here that you probably could have removed and it still could have been effective but
3: yeah i think a lot of the slack that could be removed you know it's not necessarily the story and you know when you read the whole book it's like oh yeah you could have cut this out but i, I yeah. there hasn't really been each of the moments in when I'm reading them, I'm like, Oh, that's funny. I like this. Yeah. 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 You know, it's good. But I know, I definitely agree with you that like, yeah, you know, the uh, spy Who came from the cold was like 230 pages. This is like four hundred thirty yeah. pages. There's
2: yeah. Definitely. There's probably a third of the stuff that happens in this book too. Yes. Um, in yep. terms of like actual goings on. Um, now that's not wasted. Like I said, like, no. there's great moments and, and lots of funny writing, but I, I think if it was, 350 pages or 300 pages then that would have been perfect i, for
3: I do think it it does i think the kind of what you might call slack or you know stuff that could be cut out does make it help make it a more approachable book than yeah Spy it came from the cold at least on like a first read i know yeah people i've talked to who read spy it came from the cold and then now we're reading taylor of panama and i agree with them said it's you know it's a much easier book to read it's much it it is simpler to follow um not and that's not necessarily a bad thing um no, it's uh but it's you know it's kind of it's definitely taken a very different approach than what yeah spy who came from the cold took
1: yeah it's it's basically a story of one guy's bullshit getting him in trouble rather than <laughs> you know several guys bullshit getting all of them in
0: trouble, <laughs> <laughs> the <world> in
1: trouble. <laughs> um so we get this sort of one two punch where Osnard is then uh after hassling him about all of this, um, uh, Pendle gets defensive and, um, he's sort of is like, well, who are you? How do you know all of this? (laughs) And Osnard's like, well, I'm a spy. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a spy spy for Mary England. We're reopening Panama. What for? Tell you over dinner. What time do you close the shop on Fridays?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I think that that's one of the great things about his character is like, um, uh Pendle is always kind of I, I think partly due to the fact that he's, you know, a lot of the people here in, he's interacting with are not native English speakers, a lot of them. So he's kind of got this mastery of language, even above other English speakers, but particularly with the people he's been surrounded by since he moved to Panama. He has this mastery of language that he's always able to kind of like one up people in conversations and, and win conversations. But uh Osnard is like as uh good as Pendle uh in in talking and their banter back and forth is 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 really fun but it it also is important for the plot that like he can't he can't use his fluence to like outwit Pendle, um Osnard
1: yeah no he's met someone who can basically s- like just snooker him right back and um Although there is a line that says that uh, Spanish was his second soul and increasingly his preferred language. So we do get kind of a hint that he's like yeah. incredibly good at Spanish, but it's not clear if he's as good at charming people and it or if he can really pull off the, you know, uh, jovial Englishman shtick in Spanish. But, um, it, so Osnard is straight up just saying like, yeah, I'm a spy. The UK is interested in Panama right now and what happens when the canal reverts back to uh panamanian ownership and so they're like he's like yeah you've got a ton of financial problems my (laughs) dude and we can reward you really handsomely for membership since you're a tailor and you you talk to all these uh you know these people in the upper echelon so um he's like you know how many suits do i need to order to look like a really posh customer let's let's meet for dinner at your at your dinner club and so pendle is just like completely freaking out. Um, this guy's got him, got one over on him. He's he's subject to this terrifying secret. And something that I think is an interesting contrast here is that uh, it's basically implied that Pendle lives his life in fear of this sort of discovery of um, people figuring out that he is not... Who they who uh, he presents himself to be to the people of Panama, whereas Osnard is he makes very little attempt throughout the book to uh, hide the fact that he's a spy to anyone. Um, He just shows up. He's immediately tossing money around and um, just openly tells people that he's, you know, I work with the embassy and uh, stuff like that. And so you have one man who's terrified of discovery about his real life. And then you have another guy who's just openly like, hello, world, I'm a spy. Yeah. And uh, <laughs>
0: it's,
3: it's a most, really interesting contrast. It's, it's like the most James Bond aspect of a John le Carre book where he's just like going around being like, oh, I'm a yeah. spy. Look at me. I'm throwing out <laughs> yeah. hundreds and and drinking. Yeah. And, uh, except he looks nothing like James Bond. He's kind of a schlubby Uh, yeah you know which is it made me you know as a fat guy it made me feel uh very good that you know he's like a ladies man and popular and uh it it, it felt good (laughs) to feel represented Um, quite a hit with the ladies Smiley
1: would approve of osnard
3: I don't think so. I don't think, no. so. I don't think so. I think, he would oh think
1: God, he's, he's flashy. I think, I think yeah. uh, Smiley and Control would be freaking out about this guy.
2: Yeah, completely. He's, he's not one of Smiley's people. That's for sure. No. <laughs> also, uh, I, I think... Uh,
1: hate, that's Smiley's people. <laughs> <laughs>
2: um, I think, you know, the, the, one of the interesting things, again, I just want to bring up the movie again. So... Uh, when you read this, I have a pretty clear picture from the book of what Osnard looks like in my in my mind. And Pierce Brosnan plays him in the <laughs> movie. So, uh, and again, we'll rewatch the movie at some point for, for the podcast, I'm sure. But how would they manage to kind of pull off the same character with Pierce Brosnan as opposed to how Osnard is described in the book? I, I don't yeah, that's
1: really... A, that's a glow up.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a huge glow up. Makeover, Lipo. He's... he's uh, living his best life
1: um (laughs) so we we get this you know this great scene where um he has to call home and tell luisa like yeah i'm gonna be out partying with this guy at this dinner club look he's gonna spend a lot of money and um and then he's just standing alone and freaking out and i just i love this paragraph where he's just kind of like what the fuck
0: (laughs) it's (laughs)
1: His face startled him in the mirror with its normality. Why haven't you changed color, shape, size? What else has to happen to you before something happens to you? You get up in the morning. Your bank manager confirms the end of the world is at hand. You go to the shop and in marches an English spy who mugs you with your past and tells you he wants to make you rich and keep you as you are.
2: <laughs> yeah, what's the um, what's the phrase again, Emma, that you brought up uh in in talking about um, like recruiting spies, what's the what's the shortcut for the like reasons? Oh, people- mice, mice, mice yeah. yeah. And and Pendle's basically got like all of them, right?
1: Yeah, <laughs> um, like he's getting in with the money, but he's also, um, I I mean, we'll see in like the next chapter. He yeah, starts yeah. appealing to his to his ego and uh, yeah, um,
0: it's like patriotism honestly, for Pen- England. Pendle- yeah.
1: Pendle does half of the sort of uh, coercion and cultivation himself, which we'll see yeah. when he meets Mickey. Yeah. Um, so they're they're at this this uh, beautiful posh dinner club, where um, the the club union is where the super rich of Panama have their presence here on Earth. We get this wonderful description where I, I think it's very clear that I, I couldn't find exact proof of this like i mentioned in an interview but it's it seems to me that john le Carre actually went to panama and bummed around for a while and um either that or he's very good at writing Hmm. <laughs> yeah so
0: he's
1: at the club and he's 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 been completely shaken by this situation, but then he sort of returns to his element because he sees all the people he knows. He's like, oh, yeah, here's this judge and his mistress. Um, they hired assassins. There was a hitman. Um, there was an arrest for, you know, um, financial stuff. Um and so Osnard is sort of then he plays the sort of wide eyed, like, whole, you know, newcomer. And he's like, whoa, what, what's happening? Tell me all the gossip. And he says, well, first of all, Andy Pendle continued, very excited by an omniscience that stretched well beyond his knowledge of the case. <laughs> and so he's he starts making shit up again. And um, <laughs> <laughs> so he he's completely makes up all the stuff and he's talking about, you know, secret societies and and. Panama and he's like he re-emphasizes again that, you know, oh yeah, people tell me all of this stuff. They tell me everything while I'm measuring them. And uh there's this this great paragraph about fluence where he's sort of explaining that you know it's downsize Delgado, upsize Miguel and Harry Pindle on the water like a cork. It was a system of survival that Pindle had developed in prison and perfected in marriage. And its purpose was to provide a hostile world with whatever made it feel at ease with itself. <laughs> so he basically just tells people what they want to hear and, you know, stuff to impress them.
2: He's a classic yes man. He just. Yeah. yeah. He wants Where everyone. He's like, to well, well this feel. guy
1: wants to hear all the juicy gossip. He yeah. wants yeah. to know about, you know, all the leading l- luminaries of Panamanian society. And so I'm going to talk about them and then some and make up some stuff.
3: Yeah, I'm going to give him exactly what he wants and he's going to pay me for it um and no matter what you know he'll figure out as it goes yeah
1: and so you know we and then we get these flashes where um i they keep mentioning uh them drinking and so i I, you know i think it's meant to be implied that he's starting to get progressively drunker as they're talking Yes. and um and so he starts ranting about his wife, and he's, he says in jealousy, he's like, you know, everyone loves this Ernesto Delgado. They think he's so great. They think he's incorruptible. Well, I think he's corrupt. I say he's really corrupt. <laughs> and he's just making this up, but Osnard is like, yeah, he's, he's corrupt. Yeah, tell me more. And he's like, you know, without Luisa, uh, this guy would be completely underwater. Then finally we get to Mickey Abraxas, who becomes a, a very
0: uh-huh.
1: pivotal figure in this book. And, um, Mickey is an enormous figure in a magenta smoking jacket, and he runs over to Harry and is like, oh, my God, I love you. (laughs) And so Mickey is this larger-than-life figure. He was a major player in the drug trade under the dictatorship, Um, but he's also Marta's uh, close friend from the anti-Noriega movement. Um, We get this sort of backstory that, you know, Mickey has a... um, he's got a, you know, Oxford education. Um, and he was, uh, you know, sort of like the student revolutionary back in, uh, when he's back in Panama, um, he ended up in jail and he was savagely abused by other inmates. Um, yeah. And so he's trying another to, another one of those life.
2: little, like really yeah. nasty stuff. Just, yeah.
1: Me. Another one of those flashes of pain that gets introduced to the story where he's like, yeah, Mickey has had this horrible life. Um, Courtesy of you know um, being a member of these these this sort of you know like democratic revolutionary group, and um uh, and so we get this this you know very harrowing paragraph where it's um talking about Mickey in prison, Mickey mumbling, "Harry, I swear to God, give me your hand, Harry, as I love you, get me out of here." Pindle whispering, "Mickey, listen to me, you've got a drunk in yourself, lad. Don't look them in the eye. Neither man hearing the other. Nothing to be said except hello and see you soon." And so then Osnard insults Mickey. And I think this is really the turning point for the whole book is yep. uh, Osnard insults Pendle's uh, like best pal, basically.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. And yeah.
1: Is like, Oh, you know, this guy, what is, does he do anything but get drunk and be a huge loser. And so right. Pendle is like, uh, actually Mickey leads the, uh, <laughs> what he calls <laughs> the, the silent opposition. Yeah. <laughs> And um, so he's, you know, he's really drunk at this point, And he's like, yeah, I'm going to defend my friend. And so what he does in Harry Pendle style is he's like, I'm going to make up a whole story that that Mickey is this this revolutionary figurehead that's going to bring justice and democracy to Panama once and for all. And, you know, due to his actions in this student movement and that, you know, one day there's going to be a change. So it's says. Somewhere in his overworked mind was an idea that he could make a gift of love to Mickey, build him into something he could never be—a Mickey redo, dried out, shining bright, militant, and courageous.
2: Yeah, and one—I guess some important background. I, uh, you know, I'm no expert in Panama uh, and politics, but the um, the the Panama Canal was owned by uh, America for you know since it was built essentially and kind of a lot of the prosperity within panama flows directly from people who were either in charge of running the canal so americans or the american military that was there to kind of protect the canal so a lot of the wealth that was generated from this like very important trade route was not being obviously as we can all imagine passed down to the average panamanian so um that's where a lot of the um background in kind of the revolution and student movements and MARTA and all these things kind of takes hold is that there's obviously a mass class of people in Panama that have no access to wealth. And then there's very, very privileged few, mostly, you know, some of the, um, many of them, not actually Panama uh, from Panama that are um, enjoying the, the the spoils.
3: Yeah. I mean, there's, there's as, as kind of an aside for anyone who's interested and he is actually at least in the, uh, like, opening pages of my book, if, if you're interested on kind of the the construction of the Panama Canal, the um, McCullough's The Path Between the Seas is, like, an incredible book on the history of, like, building the canal from the the French to when the, you know, start trying to do it and then the Americans succeeding. But the the kind of, at this point, it's the the right before is that the the americans literally own i think it's 10 miles on each side of the canal um and that's literally american territory that's the you know if you remember this was the controversy if mccain was eligible to be president because he was born on his his father was a, yeah, you know no- at the military base in panama um and he was born on american soil in panama um but like they they basically and you get a glimpse of, this is where louisa grew up um as like her father, she grew up on this, it's like, they have basically set up like American suburbs Mm -hmm. in, in Panama. And this is where, you know, probably what, like 95% of the wealth goes back to the US from this. And then you get kind of the upper crust of Panamanian society that kind of take, you know, funnel off money from the canal. And then you have what, You know, they call in the book on the, you know, the other side of the bridge, you have kind of this vast underclass that is uh, pushed down and, you know, there's, it's, you know, it's getting handed back to Panama, but it's not getting really handed to the, there's still this, this, like, is it? the elite and is it going to yeah, get exactly. into the Japanese or the British or the French or like this is, and this and Pendle kind of exploits this when, cause he, he kind of figures out what Osnard wants.
1: Yeah. Osnard wants, um, some sort of conspiracy to be revealed yes. that something that the British can take advantage of and use to their, uh, to their benefit. And once the canals in Panamanian control. And so, uh, because of his, uh, relationship with marta and uh her deep knowledge and experience of these these democratic movements uh he's able to invent this you know this this sort of left-wing opposition just out of pure fantasy it says uh, pendle insisted giddily ascending to hitherto unscaled heights of fantasy half-remembered recent dialogues with marta were speeding to his aid The phony democracy that is the new squeaky clean Panama, ha ha! It's all a pretense. And so Osnar gets very interested um, because this is confirmation of something that he was really hoping to hear. You know that there's there's something you can make your name with um, that you can really, well, also extort a lot of money from British intelligence, (laughs) cultivating is this idea of this uh, left wing opposition.
3: You also. He's smart enough to create like the quote unquote, like good left wing. These aren't, they're not commies. And he like specifically says this, it's, it's, you know, yeah. like, it's no, like liberal, not it's, you know, it's, <laughs> it's good centrist, uh, neoliberal democracy they want. Yeah, he's, it's not, he's like, it's,
1: they're, they just want good government, not bad yeah. government. <laughs> and, uh, and so, yeah, he invents this whole opposition. Yeah, I just I just love this scene. I think it's really just this is where the story turns is because it's suddenly the same imp that had obliged Pendle to make a scallywag of Delgado obliged him also to make a modern hero of Mickey Abraxas. And so he's just, you know, out of this sort of drunken loyalty to his friend, he's like, no, I'll show you. Panamanians are really important. And, uh, and this really just kicks off everything in the book uh, because then he's like, Yeah, Mickey's involved. He's a leader. Um, The working class, they're also involved. (laughs) Um, Yeah, he's like the fisherman. Um, Student. Ernie Delgado is corrupt. You know, there's a lot going on there. Um, And so then he's like Rafi Domingo, who we are um, already familiar with as Panama's leading playboy. He's like... Yeah, Rafi Dalmingo, he's uh he's involved with uh he has a string of hotels and they're involved with this sort of Chilean uh consortium that deals in cocaine. And uh with all of that, Rafi uh allegedly uh works with the silent opposition and, and you know provides them with financial backing and so he's just invents a story for Rafi too. Um so Osnard's like yeah, you know, this is great. Keep it coming. we I know, and he reveals that he knows that the rice farm is in just complete financial disarray. <laughs> and so he lays it out, um, which again, he's, <laughs> if we thought Ash from uh, the spy who came in from the cold was unsubtle, <laughs> Osmar <laughs> makes him look uh, like a master spy. He says, You're God's gift, Harry, classic ultimate listening post, wife with access, contacts to kill for, chum in the resistance, girl in a shop who runs with the mob, behavior pattern established over 10 years, natural cover, local language, gift of the gab, quick on your feet, never heard anyone pitch the tale better. And so he's like, you honor or exactly
3: not? I mean, it's and, funny because um, he, he says, you know, Osnard says this and he says like, oh, you're, you're he like he legitimately knows he's been lying about this and then doesn't pick up on you know because he wants this like
1: yeah i think he, he also does his
3: career so much care. that he, yeah no it's because he just wants the money um yeah, yeah so
1: osnard's like you know i'm with this guy who's just making a ton of shit up but it's stuff that i really want to hear and so this is perfect i can't wait to take it back to england and Tell them,
0: and if we know
3: we know anything about intelligence services, it probably won't hurt his career either way. No, exactly.
1: (laughs) This is why it's. uh, I think as someone who, one of my favorite movies is Burn After Reading. Mm -hmm. I think Mm -hmm. this is why. Again, I have to say, like, I would love to see the Coen Brothers take this on because it's so much of this is also about sort of just the futility and excess of intelligence work. Where there's here, he's inventing, you know, out of whole cloth this. This ha-ha out of whole cloth. Um, <laughs> it's this complete fake opposition society. And Osnard is basically taking notes. And he's like, yeah, this is great.
2: <laughs> yeah. And, yeah, um, you know, ultimately, like, intelligence services are like any other workplace where you're trying, you're grinding, <laughs> you're in the rat race, you're trying to one-up your coworkers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, it's seen from the outside as this very, like, ennobling uh, profession where everyone's doing it for a purpose and a reason. And, and like they have these higher moral faculties than the rest of us slobs work in nine to five, but ultimately the same office politics are at play. And if he's like, damn, this is a great story. <laughs> like, uh, this is going to get me some really great, um, expense, uh, expense access. And my reptile fund as is mentioned later, which is, I don't know if that's a Lacare specific term, but it's one of my favorite terms that he uses in his books all the time, it's which really is really good a fund of money that no one really knows about that you can use to pay for spies and stuff. Um, you know, you get a big reptile fund if you've got the cool stories. So,
1: Yeah. So we, we get to the moment of truth where Osnar is like, well, are you in? I know that you're $150,000 in debt and it's increasing every single like month. And, um, and, you know, Pendle is like, well, what exactly do you want? Cause he's been <laughs> spending bullshit all night. And, um, <laughs> So he's like, Well, what do you want from me? And Osnard's like, Well, we want to know what will happen when the Americans leave and control is turned over to Panama. And so, you know, all the stuff about the silent opposition and your context is wonderful. And so um, finally, Pendle gets home and, you know, he's kind of at a crossroads here because he knows he's going to say yes, but he wants to sort of retain the illusion that he could say no. Um, And so the next chapter, uh, chapter six, just I I think it's one of the best chapters in this book where we finally get a mm-hmm. lot of sort of, you know, a hundred pages into the book. We're getting a lot of backstory on um, some of the more hor- horrific things that Pendle has seen and, you know, how this is sort of influencing his sort of survival instinct and how he views his friends. And, um, And so we, it starts talking about the December invasion of Panama, uh, where the American invasion and how, um, there are these, these gunships that, um, fired, fired upon the sort of, I guess I would describe it as sort of the slum area of Panama called El Torrio and, um, and how, you know, he was perfectly safe in his really nice neighborhood that he lives in, um in this really beautiful neighborhood and Luisa was, you know, reassuring him that, you know, they, they won't hit civilians. Like the Americans know what they're doing. Um, everything's fine. And then Pendle's looking out the window and he's like, you know, the slum is burning. Marta lives there. And so. Um,
3: and Louisa's like terrified. Cause you know, this is all happening and she's with the, the children. And she's like, why are you, why yeah. are you like comforting us? Why are you like looking at the slum? and and you know i think he he realizes like they're not they're not gonna bomb where we live like right exactly there's no fear where we are there's you know we're in the rich neighborhood
2: we're perfectly safe here yeah um which is like obviously very accurate and sad but it also does a good job i think of of building pendle's character where he is like you know the kind of con man with the heart of gold like he he, he's a good he's a good person
1: We find out what happened to Marta and it's, it's horrific. So um, we just get this. um, They have this horrible shared history where um, in the shop, it was her pride never to prey upon his indulgence, never to show by word or sign that they were joined to each other in eternity, that each time they saw each other, they saw the same thing through different windows. And we find out that Marta was um, beaten in a gutter with baseball bats by Members of Noriega's uh, Dignity Battalions, um, who uh, basically hit her in the face with a bat while holding Pendle down and making him watch. And um, and so Mickey takes Marta and Pendle to this sort of um, back alley clinic because mm-hmm. uh, they couldn't get like regular medical treatment for her since she's a uh, was like a student uh, protester. And so. Um, you just get this uh, is, you know, it's uh, implied that, you know, the doctor did a horrible job. Um, You know, there's this horrific surgery, like her her teeth are smashed. uh, Her face is horribly scarred. And, you know, she's gone through this incredibly traumatic experience. And that's why she and Pendle have this um, really deep bond, but also why they find it very hard to talk to each other. Um, There's all these parts in the book where, like, they just kind of like look at each other. They can't say anything because they've undergone this utterly horrific experience together, and they just have no idea how to, um, not necessarily how to relate to each other, but um, what to even say.
2: Yeah, yeah. How do you have years after this
1: has happened? Yeah. And so I think that's just one of the more wrenching parts of the book is um, the story of what happened to Marta.
3: Yeah, and then you find out like Mickey helps them. and This is you know.
1: Yeah, and this is and, the bond that they have with yeah. Mickey, and that um, this is what uh, sent Mickey to jail. Yeah. Is, um,
3: um. And 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 Harry doesn't go again because just he doesn't know. No, the doctor doesn't only because the doctor doesn't know who he is. Right. Yeah. The doctor. Yeah, rats and on so there,
1: Mickey and yeah. Marta and Pendle have this sort of. Um, just this sort of triangle of like they all shared this horrible experience together, but, um, they have the, it's just all this love and guilt where they have no yeah. idea how to really talk about it or what to do because basically none of them were supposed to be there
0: yeah. or, or in this
1: situation yeah. at all. And,
2: and so in a weird way, almost like they, none of them kind of should have even survived that whole scenario either. Yeah. No. Yeah
1: where it would be easier to grapple with if, like, one of them had died or if they had all died there, but instead, you know, they all have to live with what happened, and so it deeply affects, I think, how Pendle and the other characters relate to each other. Yeah. So then we meet with Osnard again, who says that, um, uh, reemphasizes that if Pendle keeps passing good information, that he'll be out of the woods financially in three years, which is basically a lifesaver.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: and um so then pendle has this he's still having a bit of a crisis about it he's um like well maybe i should tell Louisa about all of this but he can't even imagine where to begin the conversation because Louisa is <laughs> yeah. this incredibly strict woman um
2: and just like yeah sorry everything you, literally everything you know about me is a lie yeah. except for the fact that you're married to me and we have children
1: Yeah, and so he imagines telling his children, it's today it's our own Harry in the hot seat explaining to his beloved children that daddy for the entire length of his marriage to Mummy, and for all the time the children have been old enough to listen to him has been telling some highly ornamented porky pies about our great family hero and role model, the non-existent Mr. Braithwaite, rest his soul. And that far from being Braithwaite's favorite son, your father and husband devoted 912 formative days and nights to an in-depth study of the brickwork of Her Majesty's Houses of Correction.
0: <laughs> yep.
1: And so he's, you know, he's envisioning telling his family, and he's like, nope, not doing it.
3: <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, you also find out that, like, I think this is basically when you find out, like, he's been telling Louisa how evil Uncle Benny is the whole time. Oh, and, yeah. You know, <laughs> like, yeah, he doesn't tell him he went to jail for him, or that he saved him, or that's how he got to Panama. It's just like, oh, it's my evil Uncle Benny who I escaped, and,
1: yeah, he's like, yeah, I escaped my uncle Benny's ego-wicked you know, influence and uh, went went to uh, Panama, which I think kind of it's possible that that plays into maybe anti-Semitic beliefs that Louisa herself holds. Um, yeah, where she's right. like, oh yeah, that your wicked Jewish uncle, <laughs> um, because we get the story that uh, Pendle. Uh, the arson was they set a warehouse on fire as part of a scam. Right. Um I, I believe it was for, for the insurance money as, in that.
3: Uh, as it, as it is known in New York and New Jersey, it's called Jewish Lightning. Um <laughs> as, uh, I've never heard about that what, Yeah, it when like you know, like the, the Bronx is burning when, when it was there's a lot of Jewish landlords and they would set their apartment buildings on fire for the insurance money and you know, it was lightning caused it or you know jewish lightning is
2: the is the is the phrase Uh, that's a great phrase
1: yeah so pendle is the son of benny's older brother um who impregnated an irish maid in their household and so that's where harry comes from and he was at this uh orphanage after his um, mother went back to ireland and his father died and so benny comes and rescues him um they had this great quote the jewish hutzpa is yours and so is the irish blarney if you could only ditch the guilt
3: <laughs> <laughs> it's like the two most like guilt-ridden societies like Catholicism yeah. yeah. Judaism or religions you know irish it's just there's Catholic, no escape in yeah. Ireland yeah yeah
1: yeah, <laughs> yeah I just I, I love this chapter because it's just here you know we're a quarter into the book and so finally john le is like all right you want the story (laughs) here's all the (laughs) really horrible parts of his life (laughs) um because he's got quite a tragic life and uh, so it's it's becoming sort of increasingly clear to the reader that this sort of you know very lighthearted patter is just him like papering over um stuff like okay basically this whole book is like a um men will literally make up shit and sell it to British intelligence rather than go to therapy
0: (laughs) scenario.
2: (laughs) They do be like that. (laughs)
1: Um, I think therapy might have helped uh, Pendle quite a lot.
2: Yeah, I think a lot of people in this book could have used therapy. (laughs) Um,
1: So we we find out about... um, You know, there's these... conversations in prison where uncle Benny vis- visits him. And he's like, I can't believe you're staying loyal to me. Thank you for ke- what, what does he say? Keeping stum, Yeah. Um, um. stum." And, uh, Harry's like, yeah, I'm not going to let you down, man. And look, I'm learning how to, how to tailor. And so, you know, I'll make our like warehouse dream true. Um, um, uh, cause uncle Benny is also a, ta- uh, tailor. Um, he has an interesting backstory of his own. um, and so finally, um finally we sort of get out of this sort of um rhapsodizing mournfully about the past and he uh he's like, Maybe I'll tell Luisa tomorrow. Um clearly he's he's not going to. <laughs> um we also learn about how uh he got a start in Panama because obviously you can't just randomly Pop up in Panama with a uh, boutique bespoke tailoring firm. Uh, Uncle Benny has a friend who owes him a favor that's unspecified, <laughs> um, but implied to be pretty weighty. And so this friend is like, um, gave him six months of credit from a uh, huge textile warehouse and uh, like helps him figure out how to get set up. And Uh, So this Mr. Bluthner really helps. Um, So he visits Mr. Bluthner and he um, kind of obliquely asks him for money uh, to help with his financial situation uh, in sort of an attempt to uh, not take Osnard's assignment. And Bluthner is like, yeah, you're on your uh, you're on your own at this point. (laughs) Yeah. Like, you know, the favor has been exhausted.
3: Yeah, the favorite um, was, was bringing you over and getting you set up. That's, that's yeah, it.
1: like yeah. I can't help you with uh $150,000 of that and all of this. So he says, either a man is mad or he's a millionaire. Harry Boy, it's a law. A man's got to pay for his own dreams. And so, yeah, he figures he's he's fucked and he's got to uh he's he's got to uh figure this out with Osnard and so. Finally, it's revealed to the reader. Um, Pendle and Marta are laying on a bed together, and you're like, oh, of course. Yeah. <laughs> As has been only obliquely stated before, um, they've had this long running affair. Um, her whole family died in the 1989 invasion. She's got this really tragic life. Uh, she lives in the El Chirio sort of um, uh, neighborhood of the underclass in Panama. Yeah. That's and where then, uh
3: the commandancia Noriega's that that is part of the reason why it was you know targeted was that that's where Noriega was hiding during the invasion right
1: and um and then we just to twist the knife a bit further, we find out that um they were going to uh consummate their affair the night that she was attacked and um so they were like driving down and um then uh you know she like pulled out of the car and um she's beaten. And um, we find out that Mickey went to prison because he helped Marta um, at the clinic and that the only reason Harry didn't go to prison for helping her is because the doctor didn't know his name. Um, Just the sort of slow reveal of these tragic details, really, um, I I think it's really makes it very impactful. And I think it also goes with the sort of just it's very much a look into Pendle's mindset. Um, Like he cannot bear to think about this stuff in depth. Or very long. And so you just get these flashes where it's like, oh, yeah, there's the time Marta was brutally beaten in the street. And then there's the time my best friend went to jail for helping me and Marta. You know, this kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Because he really just cannot bear to think about this every day or to really process it. Yep. So then we get to the British Embassy in Panama. And they're all in a tizzy because of the sort of nebulous assignment has been posted over for a uh, political officer um, and they very quickly figure out that Osnard is a spy um, because they're like well we didn't ask for a political officer <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
2: and we're basically um, being told you must take this person yeah
1: something very funny to me is that they call the, um, the British intelligence the friends yeah um, so they're like oh I guess the friends sent him
3: <laughs> yeah, and you see, I mean, this, this is where we meet Stormont, and it's like, he's just not, they're in this meeting, he's just not getting it. He's like, Yeah, well, we don't need a political officer. I'm the political officer. And he's like, No.
2: <laughs> yeah, he, and
1: they're like, No, he's a political, political officer.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's and like so, a perfect Iannucci scene right there. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I think that mostly the British uh, embassy plotline could have been cut. It's not Definitely. super interesting. Um, yeah. The main the Main point, I think, though, is the sort of Stormont uh freaking out, and this is sort of almost a callback to the spy who came in from the cold where he starts freaking about changes in the service. Where he um he calls uh Osnard a faceless upstart from the wrong side of the park, trained to hang around street corners and steam open mail, and uh, <laughs> so he's really mad. And so we get this whole thing where um rather than Osnard being too posh for uh. For Pendle, um, Stormont considers Osnar just this kind of seedy, uh, yeah. lower class type. Who he's like, oh, all he does is open mail and you know snoop on people, and he's yeah. not a purebred. He says purebred foreign servant. And yeah, um,
2: interestingly, maybe one of the only reasons the the embassy plot line exists is maybe for the Fran um, Fran Osnar yeah. thing, which is basically just invent a reason to invent like the office girl that all the all the people have a crush on. To show that Andy Osnard is a ladies man that, that that's literally really the yeah. only reason that it
1: otherwise there's really no up. purpose no yeah. I mean um, it's
2: like if
3: you're if you're if you look back you know this is his interpretation of our man in Havana this is nowhere like there's no similar plot line yeah in that book um
1: well because in our man in Havana he he uh he he falls in love with the agent that they sent yeah to help yep, him yep yep um so then we we cut back to Pendle. Um, he's tailoring for the president. And we get this very funny sort of uh, dual scene where um, he's like, yeah, this is the time I'm actually going to talk to him. Um, I've been telling Osnard that we're really deep friends and that uh, we we have a really great relationship and that he confides a lot in me. And then he's like, basically, it's, <laughs> he's like, it's described as a strangled greeting because he's so flustered and doesn't have a chance to talk to him and then one of the funnier uh transitions in this book i think is um uh osnard's like yeah ask him about what happened on his tri- trip to uh to hong kong and japan um you know try and get some details get some stories yeah. and so Pindle tries his best he's like hey did anything happen while you're in hong kong and um the president just goes Too tight, he announces. You make me too tight, Mr. Braithwaite. Why won't you let your president breathe, you tailors?" And so then we (laughs) get a paragraph cut. Harry, he says to me, those parks they've got in Paris, I'd do the same for Panama tomorrow if it wasn't for the property developers and the communists. (laughs) (laughs) So he meets Osnard and he's like, he makes up so much shit about what the president of Panama said to him that Osnar has to get a notebook and start writing things down and he's like furiously turning pages because he's writing so much.
2: Yeah. And he always... I mean, uh, always oh, Sorry, go ahead, Max.
3: I was going to say, this is where you really, this is where you first get like the real, like you get to see both sides, you know, up to this point, you know, like, Oh, is he making up, he's making up this stuff about Mickey yeah. and Rafi, but you don't see, and this, you literally get to see side by side, like what he experienced with that. the president and then what he is telling. And they're just so far apart.
1: <laughs> yeah. You're right. It's direct contrast. And I got uh I got to keep hitting this point. It would make an amazing scene in a movie. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I haven't watched the movie yet. I've got to see if they, they uh, retain that. But, um, yeah, so he's greatly exaggerated his uh, his uh, relationship with these uh, higher political figures. And, um, and <laughs> he makes up this thing with the president where he's like, what I'm doing for the new emerging infant state of Panama, which I love, will cost me blood. <laughs> and Osnard's like, this is great. I'm writing it all down. Oh, he says one king size bonus assured. So, you know, mission accomplished. Um, and then he also, he start, he makes up way more, sh- uh, shit about the opposition to Osnard where he's like, um, he's, he basically just enters his, uh, liar's mind palace and he's like, um, yeah, they're just these noble revolutionaries. Um, Mickey's their leader. He'll never admit it. If you talk to them, they'll pretend they don't know anything about it. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, he says they're for educating the poor and needy. They're for furthering Panama's identity as a single-fledgling democracy. And um, it's like his breast was filling with loyal pride. And um, so then Osnard is like, well, you know, we can we can get this whole network set up. And uh, we can pay Rafi and Mickey and Marta uh, as sources. And so Pendle is like, oh, shit, and has to shut that down. Like, oh, no, I don't think they'd be comfortable with that. <laughs> <laughs>
2: He also um, does this great thing where he's constantly saying, like, oh, not, you know, this is what he said, but not in so many words, but you could tell <laughs> that's what he meant. Yeah. And like, Yeah, because Osnard oh,
1: yeah. Osnar keeps going, like, wow, and he really said that. And like, well, I'm paraphrasing. But yeah, that was the really <laughs> yes.
2: <laughs> yeah, and keep constantly being like, just tell me what they said, and I'll add, like, the embellishment myself. He's like, oh. I'll, I'll,
3: I'll make it look good to my bosses. You don't need exactly, to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: So then um, in the, his meetings with Marta, um, when they when they meet, he's like, so let's say you were going to have a silent opposition. How would you go about it? And she's like, oh, yeah, we'd do a, a fisherman strike, I guess. Um yeah. Because these thousands of boats would be able to shut down, you know, traffic in the canal. And he's like, oh, this is really good. <laughs> So she has this great speech where she's talking about how, you know, this grand fisherman strike would just shut down the canal. The Yankees wouldn't know what to do. We'll ask for everything. Um, We shall ask them, which side of the bridge do you stand? Are you Panamanian men or are you Yankee slaves? (laughs) And he's like, oh, thanks, this rocks.
3: (laughs) Yoink, I'm taking this.
1: Yeah, he's basically taking notes, like. Yeah, this is, this is, and so, you know, he's going to go back to Osnar and be like, yeah, the fisherman.
3: (laughs) And she knows, I mean, she knows he's doing something. Like she's not exactly clear, but she's like, she she just loves him. She's like, okay, this is is what you need.
1: She loves him. So she's like, yeah, I'll answer your dumb questions. Like (laughs) I'll, I'll, I'll indulge you. And then, you know, she's a revolutionary. She's like, yeah, here's what I would do. Um, but you know, unfortunately I can't, um, so then we switch to chapter nine, which uh, goes to Louisa's perspective. Uh, I think Louisa is actually, you know, I love John Le Carre. I think he sometimes failed at writing women. And um, Louisa is a character that I've struggled with in the multiple times I've read this book um, because she's basically just a nagging shrew. Um <laughs>
2: And hysterical in the most like uh tropey sense, you know. Yeah, I mean? she's yeah. hysterical.
1: She's written in this very stilted way. Um, she's always like, Harry, I do not understand why you would do this. And um, you know, she's moral overly moralistic, she lectures, um, she has, you know, these sort of unrealistic standards for people. Um, but then we learn that Luisa, and this is where she actually becomes sort of an interesting character. Um, we learn that Luisa is actually she is the human cost of Pendle's lies starting to mount. Um, It's become clear that um, she's starting to sense that something is wrong with Pendle. Um, So we start getting the other side of what it looks like uh, when someone gets wrapped up in a scheme because she's like, he's gone every night because he's either meeting with Marta and talking about this stuff or he's um, meeting with Osnard. Uh, He's ordered a ton of books about like Japanese trade and, um, You know economics, and um, no and so one is she's subtle
3: in this book. It's just like yeah. everyone <laughs> <Yeah>. is like
2: <laughs> bumbling. No, so no she tries to deal confusion.
1: with it by like um having this this dinner party, and this is where we find out that Louis is an alcoholic. Um, yeah, it's not entirely clear whether she this is a problem she struggled with for a while, or it's just like intensifying as the situation uh, sort of mounts.
2: Yeah, she's got but, a bottle of vodka hidden in the bathroom.
1: Yeah, she's she's got vodka in the bathroom. Um, he mentions uh in another chapter that you know she had taken to brushing her teeth constantly to like hide <laughs> her broth. Um, there's all these asides where it's like she had she goes to the bathroom and has like three drinks, and then will yeah. come back out. And um, so she's just and here the narration actually just starts coming apart. It becomes really sort of um, just almost. I don't know if the word is, scattered, episodic, where, uh, and yeah. then we also get almost stream of consciousness stuff, where uh, she just starts rant- ranting like, I hate you, Raffi, leave me alone, you sleazeball, and take your eyes off Donna, and Jesus, Harry, are you finally going to fuck me tonight? And it's just like, insanely yeah. vulgar and strange, and completely at odds with how she's portrayed in the rest of the book.
0: Yeah. So...
2: And she's also like losing it and thinking that Harry's going to like burn down the house and all this stuff. I, 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 I don't know. It's just a very, um, like, I think compared to how we wrote Liz gold, right? Yeah. She, she was, uh, someone who's in over her head, but clearly smart, capable, interesting, intelligent. And, you know, not every character has to be intelligent. Doesn't, you know, that's not what makes a good character or, you know, good female character, but, um, he doesn't seem to be very charitable with Louisa at all. Like he no. he kind of just paints her as like no. a mixture of stupid, paranoid, and like hysterical. And it, it just it just felt off, and it didn't fit very well. I
1: yeah. Think. I think basically Harry like he loves her but as sort of a prop. Like she is a proof that he has achieved a good life.
0: Yes, definitely. Like yeah.
1: Like I've married this upstanding American woman from the zone and we have two kids and this is proof that you know I've I've reformed and I'm a man yeah. of high society. And so he never really sees her other than the sort of one dimensional character. And unfortunately I feel like John Le Carre did it doesn't really portray it as well as it like, like I feel like it's not handled as deftly as it could have been.
2: Yeah. yeah, I think so. And I think it actually would have been better if she was a more sympathetic character, because I think that's a really important point, which is like, Pendle's doing all this stuff and these fun es- escapades, but it's actually like really harming like his family who are yeah. like, totally innocent and in all this. Yeah. And he spent and all of her make-
1: inheritance on a rice farm.
2: <laughs> yeah. And by making her kind of see- very unlikable and just a uh, very flat, crazy character, you don't really, that part doesn't hit as well, I think.
1: Yeah. And then you also get her, uh, she has a flashback about the invasion and, um, you learn that, you know, she was trying... She was terrified. She was trying yep. to comfort her kids, and Pindle just basically dips and is like, got to go check on Marta.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's like... It's just like as... It's just such a heart-wrenching thing. Like, no matter what, you know, actual danger she may have been in, just to be so terrified for your kids and seeing your husband kind of abandon you is just yeah, exactly. kind of a heart-wrenching moment.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah, so then she actually... um she actually meets Osnard and um, we get this incredible stream of consciousness paragraph where um, they go to the rice farm and she's just, it's just this, basically just this rant about life in the zone. And so it's just completely different from the way the sort of narrative works for Pendle. And it's very clear that, She's basically just coming apart at the seams. And uh, so, but already she was slipping back into the midst of her own childhood, which was what she did whenever they drove to any time. That's the rice farm An out of body experience back into the deadly predictability of Zonian life from day to day into the crematorium sweetness bequeathed to us by our dreaming forefathers, Nothing left for us to do but drift amid the all year round flowers that the company grows for us and the always green lawns that the company mows for us and swim in the company pools and hate our beautiful sisters and read the company newspapers and fantasize about being a perfected society of early American socialists, part settlers, part colonizers, part preachers to the godless natives in the world beyond the zone, while never actually rising above our own petty arguments and jealousies. Which are the lot of any foreign garrison, never questioning the company's assumptions, whether ethnic, sexual, or social, never presuming to step outside the confinement allotted to us, but progressing obediently and inexorably, level by level, up and down the tideless narrow avenue of our preordained rut in life, knowing that every lock and lake and gully, every tunnel robot dam, and every shaped and ordered hill on either side of them is the immutable achievement of the dead and that our bounden duty here on earth is to praise god in the company steer a straight line between the walls cultivate our faith chastity and chastity in defiance of our promiscuous sister masturbate ourselves to death and polish the brass on the eighth wonder of its day <laughs> you're just like holy shit <laughs> yeah
0: <laughs>
1: she's coming Damn. apart there's just these it's just a sort of drunken rant of this you know this really uptight woman
2: yeah but with some good points mixed in
1: yes <laughs> And so it's, I'm too damn young, she yelled. I'm too young and too alive to see my childhood trash before my eyes. She sat up with a jump. Her head must have rolled onto Pindle's uncollaborative shoulder. What did I say? She demanded anxiously. She had said nothing. <laughs> so yeah, so she meets Osnard and she's really um, kind of, she's really charmed by him and uh, thinks he's really hot
2: yeah, everyone everyone ladies love cool Osnard. <laughs> <laughs> and
1: then um so then we get another uh interlude where Pindle goes to um to meet the general. Uh who knew
3: who knew Luis's dad? He's, he's like yeah. the guy in charge of the the like, maybe the last general in charge of the canals. Yeah, zone. like
1: the American base, right. basically. Yeah,
3: yeah um and you know they have this like very friendly conversation you know they actually you know unlike the president where he's you know and Luisa like warns like oh be on your best behavior they get the car washed everything they don't you know he he goes in and you know they've a they've like seem to know each other he knows Luisa's dad they've like a you know superficial but friendly conversation yeah and then once again you get the contrast when he goes back to osnard of just like making up stuff (laughs) whole cloth about, oh, are they going to keep the military bases and talking you know? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't say, and you know, it was implied heavily. Um, It's the same sort of thing. It's just kind of another, it's, it's a good, it's a good scene, but it is kind of like, he's kind of done the same thing twice in a row. It is, you know, if you're talking about things you could cut, it's like, he did the exact (laughs) same thing with the president two
2: chapters before. Could have been the same chapter. Yeah. Yeah. Um, You know, and, and the, the the thing about um the chat this stuff that I find interesting too is they do the the cutting back and forth is good because you kind of realize that like what Osnard is asking Pendle to do in these very short yeah. brief interactions is impossible without being in so suspicious that any of these people will be like, uh, can we get a new tailor? Why is this guy asking me all this yeah. stuff, right? Osnard is like, you gotta ask him about the Japanese and what they're doing, and who's involved. And a t- if a tailor was asking those questions, no matter how friendly you were, you're at like a <laughs> high place to fish like this, you'd be like, Dude, Dude are you I'm a not, spy? You you <laughs> like, yeah, why do
1: you it's like know just, just do like, like, yeah, what do you, what do you <laughs> think about <laughs> the, the yen? How's how yeah.
0: that? Yeah, yeah exactly, so can you tell
3: yeah. me exactly what you're gonna do with the military bases once the canal <laughs> is over? Yeah. yeah. Wait, let me I'm just hit the record on my tape
2: recorder first. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah, so then um Osnard and uh Pendle start struggling about um whether uh how much uh Mickey can divulge. Um mm-hmm. and so he had this conversation <laughs> where uh Osnard is, you know, he doesn't really get like, well, okay, why can't I just talk to Mickey and pay him? That's what I'm used to. Um, that's that's what's happening and uh and pendle's like yeah well mickey won't take your money he's a man of honor
3: (laughs) (laughs) i don't know i was gonna say and we you know we get this this point where it's pendle's like really trying to protect mickey it's like his, you know it's his best friend it seems like he is him and marta really it seems the only two people he cares about i mean he loves his family but that's he's protecting them just for like kind of an image of devotion. but yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah but like he he really doesn't you know he, he lied about mickey just to like oh we gotta puff him up i love mickey he's i'm gonna make it and then he's like make pulled into this, so he's trying to protect him and he comes up with this like this scheme he's like oh i'll, I'll protect him by like make do saying something that osnard will never do you have to give me all the money up front like cash <laughs> yeah. to hand over no receipts like just he'll never say this and i was just like oh yeah okay i'm sure they'll do yeah, this. that makes sense and it, like, yeah, it like, works like, yeah. for Os- and it it's probably great for osnard too because now he has like this even he can skim stuff off the top pass it around yeah. like his yeah, reptile yeah, yeah, fund yeah. like triples or whatever yeah
1: so this happens in Armand in Havana where um, he's like, yeah, I've got all these different sources and he has to start making all these like <laughs> folders and stuff to remember all his fake sources because he's getting the money for them too.
2: Well, there's um, that scene with Fran and Osnard, which is, you know, it's it's not a hugely important scene, but effectively <laughs> we just we just learned that Osnard is like a ladies man. He's got this relationship ongoing with Fran. He's very smooth, very charming, uh, quite an expert lover. And uh but she talks about how he's just got money coming out of his pockets Everywhere, at all times. Like in a safe <laughs> in all his pockets, like hundreds <laughs> and fifties. Yeah. So he's um, just living large.
1: Yeah, no, it's 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 uh it's not even just Im- implied. He is basically just
3: <laughs> it's like throwing um, literally throwing money around.
0: Yeah.
1: Incredibly uh well. But then, yeah, almost every pocket of his expensive locally made suits. Trust Andy to find himself the best tailor in town as soon as he arrived. seeing him <laughs> stuffed with twenty and fifty dollar bills.
3: I mean, it's like she like stumbles on what's actually happening, and like, I mean, not yeah. there's no way anyone could put that together. But like, no. that's literally she's like, oh yeah, he finds the best tailor immediately, and that was like <laughs> literally who and she's on like the boo chan boucan? can. Yeah, you boot, know, booting, I can't, yeah, and she yeah. like has no idea that the tailor is. Booting. Yeah. And they do that. The Buccaneers is like, yeah, yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. this office politics, you know, cool. Oh, we're
2: going to form this. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> but again, that's like yeah, one of these things I love, where like if it's just a Smiley novel, there's no way that no it would have been no. like bring everyone from the embassy and oh, no, like, we're no, all no, doing no. this together. You know? No, no. No, never. this
1: actually reminds me of the Looking Glass War. though Yes no because yeah, it's yeah, people yeah. being incredibly incompetent and being like hell yeah, we're <laughs> spies. So, hell yeah, everyone at hard. the embassy is like this Can stuff is so exciting. <laughs> Who is Buchan. How does he know all of this?
3: I mean, they you don't know? even have a real embassy. Like they're they're like an office suite in a, <laughs> yeah. in, a in a high rise. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, it's so funny. Um and I think that's that brings us to the end. Yeah, that's where we're ending. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
2: That is the end of chapter 11. So, um, you know, I think, um, a mixed bag, definitely more mixed than uh, the spy who came in from the cold. But again, that's kind of different class, but, uh, very funny, uh, much lighter with some very dark notes that are interesting. Uh, definitely a few flaws, maybe, maybe some of the more notable flaws in Lecrae's writing, uh, with respect to Louisa, especially, um, but enjoyable super enjoyable and um, i guess we'll reconvene for the next episode we will be discussing i can't remember how many chapters there are in the book but I think chapters it's uh, yeah i think there's 13
3: more or 12
2: yeah, yeah yeah so 12 to the end of the book essentially so we'll leave it there no spoilers thanks everyone for joining us and we will see you next time on tinker taylor podcast Spy. bye bye